Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome, everybody, to, uh, to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, my name is John Malcolm. I'm the Vice President of the Institute for Constitutional Government uh, here. I take it you have all had a moment to silence your cell phones. So we're here today to talk about a topic uh, that may seem very esoteric, but actually in terms of resolving constitutional issues is an incredibly important one. Uh, so yesterday, the Supreme Court heard oral argument in a Second Amendment case a New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus City of New York. It was a case challenging a gun control regulation. It's the first major Second Amendment case that the Supreme Court has heard since the 2010 uh, case McDonald. Since that time, the lower courts have considered and, and, and issued opinions in a number of cases challenging an array of gun control measures. One of the issues that these courts have grappled with and which the Supreme Court may now decide is what level of scrutiny to apply when considering a Second Amendment challenge or whether a reviewing court should resort, resort to the so-called tiers of scrutiny at all. The Supreme Court has established various levels of scrutiny when considering some, but not all, constitutional challenges. They range from stri strict scrutiny, which the court applies, for example, in cases involving racial classifications, to intermediate scrutiny, which the court applies in gender classification cases, to rational basis scrutiny, which the court applies in challenges to economic regulations. Each of these tiers of scrutiny has its own test, and the court has at times applied variants of these tests. And very often, the standard that gets applied will determine the outcome of the case. Laws facing strict scrutiny rarely survive, and laws facing a rational basis level of scrutiny are rarely struck down. But you can scour the Constitution, and you will not find a word about tiers of scrutiny. This invites the question, where did these tiers of scrutiny come from? Do they have a basis in the Constitution, or are they just politically expedient? Can these tests be applied consistently or are they too malleable? Should the court stick with the tiers of scrutiny or get rid of them? And if the justices choose to get rid of them, how should they do it and what should take their place? We have with us today three excellent speakers, John Ollendorf, Joelle Alicia, and Judd Campbell. Joelle and John wrote an article recently, which struck me as, uh, as being well worth uh, having this discussion in National Affairs called Against the Tiers of Constitutional Scrutiny. The first uh, speaker we will hear from is John Ollendorf. So John is an associate 
at the firm of Cooper and Kirk. He received his JD degree from Harvard Law School and his undergraduate degree from Bethany Lutheran College. Before joining Cooper and Kirk, he clerked for Judge Raymond Grunder on the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. He's also taught at Northwestern University's Law School as an Olin Searle Olin Cyril Smith Fellow, and also at the Georgetown University Law Center as a visiting lecturer and fellow at the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. He has published articles that have appeared in a number of prestigious journals, including the Notre Dame Law Review, Georgia Law Review, and the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. Like John, Joel is also uh, an attorney at Cooper and Kirk, a graduate of Harvard Law School and Princeton University. He clerked for Judge Dermot O'Scanlan on the Ninth Circuit and then for Justice Samuel Alito on the Supreme Court. In 2012, Forbes magazine listed Joel as one of its 30 under 30 for law and policy. Of course, he's a bit older now. He's the recipient of the Temple Bar Scholarship and the John Marshall Fellowship. He has also written articles that have been published in scholarly publications, including uh, National Affairs, University of Pennsylvania Journal of Constitutional Law, and Policy Review. Judd Campbell is a member of the faculty of the University of Richmond School of Law, where his scholarship focuses on the First Amendment and constitutional history. He joined the Richmond Law School faculty in 2016 after serving as the executive director of the Stanford Constitutional Law Center. A graduate of Stanford Law School, he got his undergraduate degree from University of Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he has two master's degrees from the London School of Economics, where he studied as a Marshall Scholar. Before entering the academy, Judge Clerk for Diane, Judge Diane Sykes on the Seventh Circuit and Judge Jose Cabranes on the Second Circuit, and he too has written a number of scholarly articles that have been published in places like the Yale Law Journal, the Stanford Law Journal, the Georgetown Journal of Law and Public Policy, Constitutional Commentary, and Law and History Re Review. John, with that, the floor is yours. Well, thank, thank you, John, for that, uh, for that introduction. I'd like to begin by expressing, uh, on behalf of both myself and my colleague, Joel Elisea, our gratitude to the Heritage Foundation for hosting uh, this event on this very important and timely topic of the, the role and permissibility of tiers of scrutiny analysis in constitutional law. And we'd also, of course, like to thank uh, Professor Campbell for, for coming up here and, and sharing his thoughts and insights uh, with us all. Um, as, uh, as, as John mentioned, uh, the tiers of scrutiny, uh, just to give a little background for the uninitiated, are essentially a, a set of tests or frameworks for analysis that the courts use to, uh, to weigh or determine the constitutionality of laws that are challenged as violating some uh, 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 right or provision of the Constitution. It's usually said that there are three separate tiers of scrutiny. Uh, the, the strictest is aptly named strict scrutiny, uh, and, and that requires the government uh, to show that a challenged law is necessary to achieve a compelling government interest. The next in line, again, uh, aptly named, the courts are very creative with these names, uh, in, intermediate scrutiny uh, uh, demands a slightly lesser showing, and then at the bottom of the tiers, uh, we have rational basis review, which basically sanctions any law that's, that suffers a very minimal level of rationality. And these three tiers of scrutiny really dominate the modern conversation about constitutional law. And they do dominate the court's jurisprudence in several areas, including equal protection, First Amendment, uh, and due process. 
And as, as John mentioned, in many cases, uh, the outcome determinative choice in, in the case will be which level of scrutiny to apply. Um, but uh, as Joel and I argued in uh, uh, this recent article in National Affairs, we think it's really uh, high time to uh, really fundamentally reconsider the role of the tiers of scrutiny in constitutional analysis and whether they are consistent uh, with our uh, legal traditions and constitutional structure. And uh, just very briefly this morning, I want to outline two reasons, two, two reasons why we think that the tiers of scrutiny framework is problematic. And the first is that we think and, and argue in the article that uh, the tiers of scrutiny approach is inconsistent. It's unsupported by the original meaning of the Constitution and, in fact, is in, in many cases directly inconsistent with the original meaning of the Constitution. Uh, so uh, the first point I'd make is that at the founding, uh, there was nothing like tiers of scrutiny analysis. Uh, uh, Chief Justice Marshall, Justice Story, and the other legal giants of the early American period uh, did not talk about uh, compelling interests or narrow tailoring when they were weighing the constitutionality of, of federal laws or more commonly state laws. Instead, they engaged in the process of trying to discern the boundary lines or the scope of the constitutional provision at issue and then figure out through, through textual analysis and conceptual analysis whether the challenge legislation was within the, the appropriate boundary lines. Uh, there was no weighing of interest or anything that, that uh, is familiar to modern, modern day constitutional lawyers. In fact, this tiers of scrutiny approach developed much, much later and really did not uh, get off the ground in earnest until the late 1950s and early 1960s. Uh, the first uh, case to use uh, strict scrutiny to strike down legislation uh, was decided in 1963. And uh, this framework really developed in the First Amendment context uh, as that uh, area of doctrine was coming of age in the mid-20th century. Um, and it developed, importantly, not as a faithful means of capturing or implementing the original meaning of the First Amendment, but instead is really a political expedient, a political compromise that united the various factions that were on the court in that period uh, that took very different views of, of First Amendment uh, protections. Uh, so we don't think uh, there's, there's really any basis in the original meaning of the Constitution for the tiers of scrutiny. And in many cases, uh, in fact, the tiers of scrutiny sanction and lead to results that are flatly contrary to the original meaning of the Constitution. The, the second reason uh, why we think the tiers of scrutiny are problematic uh, is that even for, for non-originalists who don't care quite so much about the Constitution's original meaning, uh, uh, these uh, frameworks for analysis just fail on their own terms because they're radically indeterminate and uh, they provide no uh, stable way of, of guiding decision-making, guiding legal decision-making, which should be a goal of any, uh, any form of legal analysis. And I'll just quickly highlight two reasons for this. The first is the, the level of generality problem. So in deciding whether uh, uh, the interest behind challenge legislation meets the compelling or important government interest threshold, depending on the tier, uh, you have to first state what the interest is. Uh, and unfortunately, in doing that, you have to choose between one of any number of different levels of generality. So in the, in the Second Amendment case that was argued yesterday, which John mentioned, uh, the interest behind New York's uh, restrictions on transporting guns could be stated as the interest in preventing violent crime by premises license holders. 
a very small number of people in New York. It could be stated as the interest in preventing gun crime in general, preventing violent crime in general, or just ensuring public safety. And now some of those might sound compelling and some of them might not. Uh, so that could, you know, the, the level of generality at which you state the interest could well determine the outcome of the case under a scrutiny analysis. But there's simply no principled way of saying which level of generality is the correct one. The Constitution provides no guidelines for determining the correct level of generality. And then second, even if you are able to arrive at a particular level of generality at which to state the government's interest, you then have to determine whether it's sufficiently important or compelling. And again, that, that's essentially just a matter of, of naked policymaking by, by the courts or, or just moral intuition in figuring out whether a particular interest strikes them as compelling or important. The Constitution does not set forth any hierarchy of values. The Constitution does not give us really any guideline for sorting trivial government interests from important government interests from compelling government interests. And all that the courts are really left with is their own policy intuitions. And that role, uh, we would suggest, is just inconsistent with the traditional understanding in American constitutional law of the, of the appropriate role of the judiciary. I want to begin by echoing John's uh, thanks to the Heritage Foundation for hosting this event, for inviting us to be here today. And I just want to pick up where John left off. John sketched out the history of the tiers of scrutiny, why we think that there are theoretical problems with it. But then the question is, well, then what are the implications of that analysis of the tiers of scrutiny? And the most immediate question would be, well, should the tiers of scrutiny be discarded? And that implicates... Uh, the question of stare decisis. What do we do about the fact that the tiers of scrutiny have become so entrenched in the free speech clause doctrine, in the equal protection clause doctrine, uh, and has been increasingly used in Second Amendment doctrine in the lower courts, not at the Supreme Court, but in the lower federal courts. And how you approach that question of stare decisis will, of course, depend on your theory of stare decisis. And the justices have different views on the force of stare decisis on uh, perhaps the most skeptical end of the spectrum would be Justice Thomas, who wrote a concurrence in a case called Gamble last year outlining his theory of stare decisis in which he adopts uh, a, a view that demonstrably erroneous precedents should not be retained and have no, uh, no right to, be, uh, to continued validity simply because they are precedents of the court. So something is demonstrably erroneous, as I think uh, John and I, and I have shown in this paper would be sufficient to discard uh, the tiers of scrutiny under Justice Thomas's kind of very, very much originalist approach to stare decisis. But the court does not does not widely share that that view. Of course, they they have other factors that they take into account, and there's no definitive list of the stare decisis factors for determining whether to overrule a precedent or keep it in place. Uh, but the the list of factors that was provided by the court in a case, again, last term in uh, Nick versus uh, Township of Scott uh, was, and I'll just read it here just so I get it right, the quality of the precedent's reasoning, the workability of the rule it established, its consistency with other related decisions, and reliance on the decision. So those are just a few criteria that the court uses to dis determine whether to overrule a pr uh, precedent. And here we would say that all four of those factors count in favor of discarding the tiers of scrutiny. Uh, 
the reasoning under, undergirding the tiers of scrutiny is essentially non-existent in terms of Supreme Court opinions. The court has never really de- delivered a sustained argument in favor of the tiers of scrutiny, explained what, where they come from, why they should exist. Uh, that that just it is a uh, it is a test in search of a justification, and there have been justifications put forward by scholars, uh, but the court has also said that, insofar as a doctrine or a precedent uh, is continually looking for a justification, that actually undercuts its stare decisis effect. Uh, the workability of the rule that was established here, for the reasons that John outlined, we think that the tiers of scrutiny are very much manipulable. They don't actually guide judicial decision-making in, in a principled fashion. Uh, and that is a, a key reason for overruling the tiers of scrutiny. That's the reason, for example, the court gave in the Janus case for overruling Abood, uh, which had to do with the mandatory collection of union dues. The consistency with other related decisions. Well, here, this is a point that Justice Kavanaugh made when he was on the D.C. Circuit, that uh, there are many other Bill of Rights provisions that, where we don't use the tiers of scrutiny. You don't use that in the Confrontation Clause context. Even in some provisions where uh, uh, current doctrine departs from the original meaning, uh, such as the Establishment Clause under, with the Lemon Test, even that isn't the tiers of scrutiny. Right? So the, the tiers of scrutiny really is, uh, it really does occupy a couple of islands within the sea of the Bill of Rights, the Free Speech Clause and the Equal Protection Clause <coughs> primarily. And the other would be the reliance interest. The, the last factor for stare decisis purposes would be the reliance interest. And we would say that there are no significant reliance interests because it is a manipulable test. So you can't really be guided by the tiers of scrutiny in terms of assessing beforehand uh, what your legal rights will be because it's just really unclear how a judge will apply the test to a given fact pattern unless you have something you know, pretty on point in, in terms of precedent. Uh, now, one might say, well, even, even if the, the test itself does not engender reliance interest, certainly the decisions from the Supreme Court based on that test engender reliance interest. But those, those specific holdings would retain stare decisis power uh, quite apart from the, the methodology used to uh, arrive at those results. The, changing the methodology might very well uh, uh, diminish the stare decisis effect of those individual decisions in some marginal uh, amount, but they nonetheless are entitled to their own stare decisis effect as holdings of the court. So then the question would be, well, what do we do if we overrule the tiers of scrutiny? How do we replace them? If you're an originalist, that is necessarily a clause-by-clause, provision-by-provision historical analysis. So you can't just say you you replace them with X and just kind of give a a sweeping kind of comprehensive answer. It it would be a historical analysis of each provision where the tiers of scrutiny have already colonized the clause. And so the free speech clause and the equal protection clause would be the prime areas where that kind of work would need to be done. But the first thing the court could do is to do no harm by not extending the tiers of scrutiny to the Second Amendment, which the lower federal courts have largely done, but the Supreme Court, as I mentioned earlier, has not done. So stopping the, the spread of the tiers of scrutiny to the Second Amendment and instead using a more text, history, tradition type approach as outlined by Justice Kavanaugh when he was on the D.C. Circuit in the Heller 2 case uh, would be a, a first step toward overruling and getting rid of the tiers of scrutiny. Uh, then after that, it really would require a sort of gradual uh, case-by-case approach to start uh, establishing more historical-based categorical rules 
uh, to protect these uh, provisions of the Bill of Rights or the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, and one way, one analogy for this, one way of seeing how the court has done this is in the Establishment Clause context. I mentioned earlier the Lemon Test, which is ostensibly the test that's supposed to guide Establishment Clause jurisprudence and uh, is widely regarded as, as being a defective test by originalists and non-originalists alike. And the court has been, over the last few decades, especially this past decade, uh, going through the process of replacing that test with a more history and tradition-based approach. But it has done it in a context-by-context basis rather than just throwing everything out at once. Uh, And I think that given how entrenched the tiers of scrutiny have been in the court's case law and the free speech and equal protection clause context, that's probably the model that would be best for replacing the tiers of scrutiny. Final point that I'll make uh, was, as John said, the Supreme Court heard oral argument yesterday in uh, the New York State Rifle Pistol Association case, uh, the Second Amendment, first Second Amendment case that the Supreme Court has heard since 2010. Uh, it's not clear what's going to happen in this case because uh, there's a strong argument that the case uh, is now moot, uh, and the uh, there was some receptivity on the part of many justices. It appeared from the questioning to concluding that the case is moot, but there was also some uh, some pretty strong pushback in the questioning by other justices such as Justices Alito and Justice, Gors- Justices Alito and Gorsuch, uh, for the proposition that it's not moot and that they should reach the merits. But there wasn't as much discussion at the oral argument about the merits themselves and what kind of approach, uh, tiers of scrutiny or history-based approach, should, would be the appropriate approach in Second Amendment cases. There were a couple of questions about that. Justice Alito asked one question about that. Uh, but we didn't get much insight from the oral argument, I think, as to what the court is likely to do when it comes to the methodological question of how to approach interpreting the Second Amendment. Um, And so with that, I'll just say thank you again for hosting us today. Great, thanks. Um, I want to start by just saying how much I really admire Joelle and John's uh, engaging essay. I think it's really easy to get stuck in a current mindset uh, in thinking about rights. Um, and forgetting that our understanding of rights really follows from developments that occurred in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, and those are not necessarily developments that we ought to idolize or even seek to preserve. So uh, John and Joel have done a really nice job here uh, prodding us to reconsider our current approach. Uh, in these remarks, I'm going to stick to the topic I know best, which is constitutional history. Um, and the main point that I want to make is that we haven't simply moved from a categorical approach to rights toward a balancing approach in a way that we could just simply move back to a categorical approach. Um, Rather, we started with two different longstanding sort of conceptions of rights. One of them was categorical, and one of them embraced balancing. And basically what happened in the middle of the 20th century is that the justices took these two different approaches and they synthesize them together into the modern tiers of scrutiny framework. And so what I want to suggest then is that simply shifting toward a more categorical or historical understanding of rights may actually in some ways uh, depart even further from a regional meaning than what we are already doing. So um, I want to start here by 
explaining how the founders uh, thought about rights and um, then turn to how that developed into the modern system in the mid-20th century and then talk at the end a little bit about the uh, modern implications. Um, Okay, let's start with the early history. So uh, at the founding through, this is through like the 1930s, American constitutionalism basically recognized two different sets of fundamental rights. Uh, so in one bundle of rights, um, there were categorical rules about what the government had to do or what the government couldn't do. And these rules were basically derived from English common law. So right to a jury trial, right against ex post facto laws, right against general warrants, the rule against prior restraints, and so on. Uh, and these rights could not be balanced away by countervailing governmental interests. At the same time, many people at the founding through the early 1930s thought that there was an imagined pre-constitutional agreement called a social contract that recognized a different bundle of rights that operated in a very different way. Um, the basic idea of social contract theory was that people have natural rights, essentially things that humans can do without a government, um, and that uh, they would agree to create a political society on the condition that everyone would um, have their rights be equally respected and that the government would only restrict those rights in order to advance the general welfare of the society rather than private factional interests. Uh, and so unlike the constitutionalized common law rights, um, the second conception of rights did not impose determinate restrictions on governmental power. Consequently, judges could enforce the first bundle of rights, the constitutionalized English common law rights, but they couldn't enforce uh, this sort of broader, looser conception of rights um, that I call natural rights. Uh, by the late 1800s, though, state and federal judges more frequently intervened uh, to say that state legislatures had departed from the terms of the social contract by passing corrupt or arbitrary legislation under the guise of exercising the police power. But again, that sort of analysis was not embracing a determinate legalistic conception of rights. Uh, so as the Supreme Court said in 1890, um, these rights were, quote, subject to such reasonable conditions as may be deemed essential to the safety, health, peace, good order, and morals of the community. Um, and so uh, rights in this second sense are operating more as defeasible interests that legislatures are fully empowered to restrict in order to achieve countervailing social interest. So up to the early 1930s, we have these two different conceptions of rights that are operating in tandem. There are these specific constitutionalized common law rules that operate without balancing. Uh, and then there's a general public good requirement that explicitly acknowledges the regulability of natural rights in order to promote the public good. So how did things change? Well, around the turn of the century, uh, progressives began to attack both uh, ideas and the court's approach to both sets of rights. So the main progressive critique of the common law rights was that the past shouldn't dictate the future and that the overriding approach to original meaning should be replaced by a more forward-looking uh, functional approach 
to uh, uh, understandings of rights. So as Benjamin Cardozo put it, quote, when judges are called upon to say how far existing rules are to be extended or restricted, they must let the welfare of the society fix the path, its direction, and its distance. At the same time, progressives were also attacking the Supreme Court's approach to the second bundle of rights, primarily by saying that the court was insufficiently deferential to legislative assessments of the public good. Uh, and once they be, uh, gained power in the late 1930s, uh, these progressives famously backed away from any meaningful judicial scrutiny of legislative restrictions, particularly of economic reg regulation. Uh, the Roosevelt appointees, however, also indicated their willingness to uh, engage in a closer scrutiny of a narrower set of liberty claims, mostly relating to laws that abridge religious or expressive freedom, uh, or laws that disfavor discrete and insular minorities. So this is the famous footnote four in the Caroline Products case from 1938. Um, and there's a whole lot more that could be said about this uh, transition, but to make a long story short, Basically, what happens with the uh, emergence of the tiers of scrutiny system is that these two different approaches are synthesized uh, by the modern court into something that is not uh, highly deferential to legislative judgments nor categorical, but rather something in between, a sort of modest compromise between the two earlier approaches to rights. So the freedom of speech is a really nice illustration of this blending. Uh, the court was no longer strictly limiting its analysis to the inherited English common law rights. Um, it, uh, for instance, extended the rule against prior restraints to new contexts um, like uh, movie licenses and parade permits. Uh, using an analogy to prior restraints, the court uh, developed vagueness doctrines and overbreadth doctrines to try to deal with the systemic effects uh, on speech of particular types of laws rather than conceptualizing the rights claims in an individualized way. Um, and this move, among other things, allowed the court to dismantle restrictions on uh, picketing and labor organizing. Um, by the 1960s, the court had basically lost touch in the free speech realm with the earlier common law rights. Um, and instead, what it was doing was basically treating the freedom of speech and press as a sort of protection for the field of communication. Um, and that's basically where we are today. We don't really think of the freedom of speech as particular English common law rights that existed in the 1790s. Rather, we think of it as freedom to communicate, subject then to this uh, balancing approach called tiers of scrutiny. Um, so what does this history mean for us today? Well, I don't think the answer to that is clear at all, uh, but I do want to express my concern that shifting away from the balancing approach toward a more categorical approach may actually push us even further away uh, from our constitutional history. So if we really wanted to unwind the 20th century changes in our conception of rights, and return instead to an originalist conception of rights, um, the government would have vastly more power. So an original understanding of speech and press freedoms would leave the government with considerable room to regulate harmful expression in ways that would be patently unconstitutional today. So the court today is willing to strike down restrictions on pornography, profanity, 
flag burning, funeral protests, commercial advertising, campaign spending. None of this has any support in the original English common law rules. Now, this is not to say that you don't have a right to speak in this broader sense, but that right would be in the second bundle of rights, the rights that are regulable in promotion of the public good, that is, on an originalist conception of rights. Or consider equal protection. So an originalist understanding of equal protection would, of course, focus on the protection of law, a well-established category of English jurisprudence that has nothing to do with the conferral of public benefits, like public education or public employment, which means that cases like Brown and Balky and Gratz would all have to go. In short, the current balancing approach reflects the fact that the scope of protection has massively expanded since the mid-20th century. Uh, and if we want to rethink our current approach to rights, particularly on originalist terms, I think we need to grapple with the fact that our entire approach to rights in general, not just tiers of scrutiny, but the very scope and conceptual understanding of rights is fundamentally different than it used to be. So in a minute, I'm going to open this up uh, for questions, so start to, to think of those. Uh, I'm going to give uh, uh, John and Joelle a, a chance to respond to what, uh, to what Judd has just said. But when, when you do that, I wonder if you sort of answer this question. So one thing that, that Judd just said that struck me was he was going, you know, in the 1800s, you had the Supreme Court reviewing a lot of state laws really to see whether these were you know, laws have been passed for a corrupt motive or whether they genuinely served the public interest. And that feeds into his theme, I think. He described closer scrutiny to a discrete set of rights. He made references to footnote, you know, foreign Caroline products about discrete and insular minorities. The thought that these tiers of scrutiny have developed to, to find a way to smoke out pretext. So in areas where, you know, racial classifications, where it is more likely that somebody would, although times are changing, thank God, more likely to pass a law that was pretextual and harder to smoke out, you give that tougher scrutiny. If it's an economic regulation, although certainly there's crony capitalism, people occasionally do uh, pass economic regulations for protectual reasons, there's less of an incentive for pretext. It's less likely, and therefore you can give that you know, a, a quicker brush. So this whole notion that these tiers of scrutiny developed to smoke out pretext and that there's a long history of the court doing that. If you could address that and any other points that Judd made, I would appreciate it. Um, so I want to make uh, two points uh, uh, in response to Judd's very thoughtful comments. Um, and then I'll take on this, uh, this question posed by John. Um, so, so the first point I would make is speaking for myself anyway, it is certainly conceivable in my view that some provision of the Constitution, the original meaning of that provision is such that it does in fact require a tiers of scrutiny approach. That is, that is conceivable to me. I think that's extremely unlikely given that we do not see the courts employing such an approach for uh, for a century after the founding, given that the, the tiers of scrutiny were in fact not designed to uh, capture or implement the original meaning of any particular constitutional provision. But it could happen, right? A, a broken clock is right twice a day, and this could be one of those two times, but, but color me skeptical. And, and my, my skepticism is heightened 
by Judd's own analysis, which I, I take to, to show that the enumerated rights in the Constitution that were seen to be enforceable by judges at the founding, at the founding at least, uh, were not thought to have as part of their original meaning this balancing tiers of scrutiny approach, but rather there was this second set of, of unenumerated background natural rights uh, that were seen as involving this type of balancing inquiry, although not by courts, not by courts. And that leads me to my second point, which is uh, Judd's, uh, Judd's uh, commentary, and in particular his, his closing thoughts, essentially um, uh, take the, uh, the appropriate role of the courts as the variable uh, and try to hold constant our current sort of understanding of, of what the scope of protection against government uh, uh, constitutional violations should be and to modulate what the appropriate role of the courts is to, uh, to, uh, to arrive or accommodate our modern understanding of, of constitutional rights and, and what, uh, what protections the courts ought to offer uh, against uh, government action. I don't think that's the right approach. I think the right approach uh, should be to hold the, the, the founding conception of, uh, of the judicial role, which I think continues in most, in most cases to be our conception, should be to hold that constant uh, and then to figure out what the appropriate scope of rights is, taking that as a given and looking to the original meaning of the Constitution. And I don't think it is part of our, uh, of our understanding in the American constitutional tradition of the role of courts that they should be engaged in uh, this type of manipulable, uh, uh, ad hoc, uh, uh, moral intuition-guided balancing analysis. Um, now, turning to, to, to John's question, this is, this is one of the traditional justifications that have been offered by scholars for the tiers of scrutiny. I think it was first most prominently uh, articulated by John Hart Ely, um, it was adopted by then uh, Professor Kagan in the context of the First Amendment. That the, what the tiers of scrutiny really do is they try to smoke out illicit government motive. And the idea is that uh, there's only uh, one means that's really going to fit very well the government's actual motive. So if you take the, 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 uh, the interest or motive that's offered by the government and the means that they're defending doesn't fit it, that's a sign, that slippage is a sign that in fact they're pursuing a different motive and that the motive they're offering now is just pretextual. Um, I think that's fine so far as it goes, but I would say that the tiers of scrutiny strike me as an extremely hand-fisted way of trying to smoke out government motive. Rather, it seems to me that if, if, if the original meaning of some constitutional provision like the Equal Protection Clause is that the government can't act for certain invidious or impermissible motives, the way we ought to enforce that is by asking whether the government has acted for impermissible or invidious motives. We do that in a wide variety uh, of doctrinal areas. I don't see why we couldn't do it here. Uh, and in engaging in this tiers of scrutiny uh, clunky way of trying to, to smoke out motive uh, uh, does not seem to me to be the most elegant or perspicacious way of enforcing that, uh, that motive ban, if that really is part of the, the meaning of some constitutional provision. Do you have anything you want to add, John? Uh, yes, I, I want to first uh, echo what John said. I, I agree with, with the, the remarks that he just made. 
Uh, but I want to also specifically take on what uh, what Professor Campbell said at the end of his remarks, which was sort of this parade of horribles about uh, look what the original meaning would mean for cutting back on all of these rights and uh, all these landmark cases that would have to go. And I'm quite skeptical of that, actually. I think that uh, the the original meaning of the free speech clause, for example, as outlined in Professor Campbell's article on this in the Yale Law Journal, which I highly recommend all of you read. It's it's really outstanding and, and breaks a lot of new ground um, and is a good place, a good starting place uh, for thinking through the original meaning of the free speech clause, where, which has really been under-explored uh, uh, in, in the scholarship. Um, but in that piece, uh, in, that, in that article, uh, Professor Campbell lays out several principles that he thinks are uh, part of the original meaning of the free speech clause, and as I understood the, the article, even judicially enforceable. So one that he points to is the sincere articulation of a point of view uh, could, not be, uh, could not be abrogated, could not be infringed by the government. Well, if that, that principle is quite broad. That's, that's, that sweeps in a lot of current doctrine, it seems to me, if that is true and if that is judicially enforceable, and perhaps he'll correct me if I've misunderstood the article, but that that seems to me to offer pretty broad protection. Uh, and there are disagreements among originalists as to some points that appear in Professor Campbell's article on free speech. So his point about, uh, as I understood it, saying that there, in, in his article, saying that there's no uh, uh, protection for expressive conduct. Uh, Professor Volokh, I think, has an article that takes the contrary view. Uh, so there, there are disagreements uh, within the scholarship on the scope of free speech protection under the original meaning, for example. But even under the 14th Amendment uh, and the Equal Protection Clause, uh, you know, Professor Campbell is making the point that there are all these cases, landmark cases, uh, decided under the Equal Protection Clause that perhaps would be inconsistent with the original meaning of equal protection. But that says nothing as to whether they would be correctly decided under other provisions if those provisions were understood under the original meaning, like the Privileges or Immunities Clause, uh, or perhaps due process, that there are, there are other provisions of the 14th Amendment that have also departed from the original meaning, and if those were restored to the original meaning, they might very well sweep in a lot of the doctrine that is currently categorized under equal protection. So, it, And I'm not saying that that's necessarily going to be true. I'm simply making the point that the analysis would have to be far, far deeper than simply looking in isolation at the original meaning of equal protection to then conclude that a lot of current doctrine would have to be thrown out. Jeff, let me ask you, uh, you a question, which is, so John and Joel make the point that these tiers of scrutiny are, are so malleable as to be practically useless. You know, what the government's interest in is def- can be defined at any level of, of generality. It can be to promote women's contraception, this is the, the um, Hobby Lobby case promote and the Little Sisters case promote uh, women's contraception, or is it to make sure that people who work at closely held companies that their women have access to uh, to contraception, and and whether one person thinks it's compelling, uh, you're going to get one judge who may have political beliefs in one you know one way who thinks something is compelling, and another judge who has different political beliefs may say that's not quite so compelling. Uh, it's a little bit like the lemon test, that these, that these things are so eminently manipulable that really what judges are doing is they're masking political decisions and political preferences under the guise of constitutional adjudication, which is 
in, in some senses, a fraud. And that's a, that's a rather bold challenge to make, and, and I was wondering whether you had a response to that. Um, yeah, I, I have a couple thoughts. I mean, w one thing is that um, what the balancing approach that the court embraced is trying to do uh, is the opposite of that. Um, originally, it was a realist effort to bring to the fore policy judgments that undergirded judicial decisions. And so uh, to the extent that it's failing to do that now, that's a major problem. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, the hope, I'm not here as an apologist for the tiers of scrutiny system, but um, the hope would be that you would do it not just on a case-by-case -case basis, but also by analogy to other cases. So you'd have uh, a case that presents a free speech issue, um, but you don't have to do uh, the levels of generality analysis fresh every time. You have earlier cases where you can try to figure out, okay, what was the level of generality for the interest uh, at this point, and how does that um, compare to this case? Um, but I do agree that there are uh, judicial judgments that go into the adjudication of these cases. Um, the thing that I would highlight here uh, and again, I say this as a historian, not as somebody uh, who, who's sort of here on an agenda, but those judgments are going to be present regardless of your approach if you want to have uh, constitutional doctrine capable of addressing new problems. So it, it's possible that you would have a sort of history and tradition approach that limits the scope of constitutional rights to what they originally were in 1790 or in 1800. Um, but if you want the doctrine to be able in some way to keep up with modern problems, to address the way that uh, speech operates in a digital age or something like that, it's going to require some judgment. Um, and whether we embed that judgment in a tiers of scrutiny system or in an arguments by analogy, um, uh, is, you know, that's a hard issue, but I, I just would um, emphasize that there has to be at some point uh, a, a level of judicial judgment that's present um, uh, unless we're going to uh, really, really constrict the scope of judicial review of rights claims. John? Just, uh, just two points in response to that. Um, first, I'm not, I'm not sure I agree that uh, that an originalist understanding of, of constitutional rights would be incapable of dealing with new problems, uh, so long as the understanding of those rights were general, uh, then of course some judgment has to be done in determining whether uh, you know, new types of, for example, restrictions on speech uh, fall within the general category that was originally prescribed. Uh, and, and no one is suggesting that uh, this is something that uh, you know, that, uh, that Alexa or Siri could figure out, right? Uh, uh, human, human judges have to, have to uh, exercise discernment in figuring that sort of thing out. Um, uh, but that is, that is different from saying, uh, I don't think any, any modern originalist would say that only the uh, specific restrictions that existed in 1791 can be struck down. Uh, instead, the, the founders adapt, uh, adopted uh, rights that had an original meaning that was general in scope. And so the task is figuring out under an originalist understanding whether modern restrictions fall within that general scope. Um, I had a second point, and I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to remember it after that articulation of the first point. <laughs> That's okay. Why don't we open it up? And if it occurs to you, if you'll just jump in. Uh, with that, let me open it up. We have a question down here. Do we have a microphone? Yeah. Okay. 
Um, um, you mentioned the tiers of scrutiny in with regard to free speech and equal protection, but it's also come up in the free exercise of religion. Uh, in Yoder, the Supreme Court said that that's the strict scrutiny was required. Then in Smith, when the court abandoned it, Congress reasserted the strict scrutiny, even a, an even stronger version of strict scrutiny. My question is, do you think that's just as unworkable because coming from Congress, it still requires the courts to, you know, make all of this stuff. It's, it's not saying it's coming from the Constitution, but still it requires the courts to get into all of that uh, subjective, malleable stuff. Or is it better coming from Congress instead of trying to convince people that somehow the Constitution requires it? Well, Yes, that, that is a very good point to, to to note that, of course, the tiers of scrutiny were used in the uh, free exercise context uh, constitutionally before the Smith decision, and then was put put in place statutorily through through RIFRA. Um, I I think there are two ways to approach your question. One is uh, when you say, "Is it better that it comes from Congress?" from a, from the perspective of the legitimacy of the exercise, certainly. Right. Uh, if 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 part of our argument is that the tiers of scrutiny are inconsistent with the original meaning, uh, or at least very likely inconsistent with the original meaning, and you're an originalist, well, that means that there's a strong question as to the legitimacy of the tiers of scrutiny and engaging in that kind of an analysis, leaving aside stare decisis as a potential uh, uh, complicating factor there. Uh, if it's a statute that Congress has enacted, well, then of course that's what the court is supposed to do. But then there's a separate question when you say, is it better uh, in terms of the actual application of the methodology? Do any of the problems with the methodology go away? And the answer there, it seems to me, is no. Like, regardless of whether it's coming from the Constitution or coming through a statute, uh, the problems that we've identified with the, the test itself, the way you go through the analysis, would, would obtain regardless of the source of the test. Um, and in fact, we use in our article... Uh, the RIFRA, uh, RIFRA case, the, the HHS contraception mandate, as an example to, to help explore some of the problems with the application of tiers of scrutiny. Um, so I think that those problems would, would re arise regardless of the source. Good question. Go ahead. I, I, I agree with that, and I remember my second point, which is related to this. Uh, <laughs> uh, I knew it would come back to me. Um, which is there are, there are degrees uh, of discretion, right, and degrees to which a question is left open to uh, to the judge's own policy instincts. And I would just you know ask you to read through any lower court Second Amendment decision that applies intermediate scrutiny, and ask yourself whether there is any surprise at the end when the court upholds the law. Uh, uh, these decisions have nothing to do with some kind of principled determination that there's a tight fit with uh, uh, with an important government interest. Uh, they're they're purely motivated by the judge's policy preference uh, in, in, in many cases, um, uh, and the function the function of the tier of scrutiny is basically to give the judge an outline for how to structure his opinion. Well, I talk first about how important I think uh, curbing crime is, and then I talk about the degree of fit, and then I conclude that the, that the legislation is permissible. And that seems to me to really be the outer edge of judicial policymaking. So you see the justices 
they're approaching what you're, you may have put your finger on the pulse of something very important, because the justices are, are testing the waters, if you will, with this. So in Heller, uh, they talked about text, uh, uh, tradition, and history, even though the lower courts in applying Heller and McDonald have all sort of ignored it and gone to the tiers of scrutiny. Um, you certainly saw this with the town of Greece uh, versus Galloway case, and really, I thought last year in the Bladensburg cross case, you could sense an interest from a number of the justices in terms of saying, well, maybe we should look at, at, at text history and tradition. But even there, they were uncomfortable with some justice. I think it might have been Justice Alito said, well, if it's a cross like the Bladensburg cross case, it's been there since World War I, it's, you know, it's fine. But of course, if somebody put up a cross today, uh, you know, it might, we might view that differently. Uh, where do you think this is going? I mean, other than, than Justice Thomas, uh, you know, are you sensing much of an interest in this? I mean, where where do you think the justices' heads are with respect to this? Well, I I think that uh, different justices, as you're as you're implying, John, diff different justices will have more receptivity to reconsidering something like the tiers of scrutiny than others, and that'll be based in part on issues of stare decisis. And some some of it will just be kind of temperamental uh, issue, like how 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 their judicial temperament, how they'd like to approach uh, changes in the law that could be quite sweeping in impl in their implications. Uh, but I think it's it's notable that uh, the justices have that this this group of justices uh, has they they've all made statements to some effect that seem skeptical of the tiers of scrutiny. So the chief uh, Chief Justice Roberts. During, uh, during I believe it was the Heller oral argument, uh, said something to the effect of, well, the tiers of scrutiny are something that have just kind of been picked up over time by the free speech clause. Uh, he, 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 he stated it in a way that sounded as if uh, he recognized the sort, of, the sort of arbitrary origins of the tiers of scrutiny. Uh, certainly, Justice Kavanaugh, in his Heller II dissent in, when he was on the D.C. Circuit, where he argues against the tiers of scrutiny and in favor of a text and history kind of approach, uh, sounded a lot of skeptical notes there. Um, and you know, J Justice Thomas, because of his general methodological views, I would think uh, would likely be receptive to reconsidering the tiers of scrutiny. So I, I think that it's it's uh, the the time for reconsidering the the tiers of scrutiny. Uh, is better now than certainly than it has been at any time since they came about in the mid-20th century. We, there, there are now enough justices on the court, I think, who would be open to reconsidering it in specific areas and, and in, again, in a more prudential, a more prudent kind of case-by-case -case approach, not just throwing everything out at once, um, that I think it, it, it is not at all speculative to say that you could see reconsideration of the tiers of scrutiny in several areas of law. The other example I'd give in addition to, to Bladensburg Cross is uh, Jones versus United States, the GPS tracking case. Um, there, it didn't involve the tiers of scrutiny, but there you saw uh, a majority of the court uh, trying to move away from just the reasonable expectation of privacy test and replace it with a more categorical test, or if not replace it, develop alongside it a more categorical test that in time may grow to replace it. And I think that's really a model the court could look to here. Uh, you know, it could try to find specific doctrinal areas within the First Amendment or equal protection where a more 
categorical original meaning-based approach could develop uh, that uh, as that develops and matures over time might grow to replace the tiers of scrutiny approach. Any final questions? And please join me in, oh, I'm sorry, yes, a late hand up there, yes. <laughs> you got in just under the wire. Since we're just under the wire, um, I wonder if you could briefly address any difference between the um, uh, First Amendment, say, where there's a very specific ban on Congress doing anything, and the 14th Amendment, which was adopted at a time where Congress had before it the examples of the Taney Court and uh, President Johnson and a specific grant of Congress to uh, enforce the amendment. Yeah, so I, I mean, I'm happy to take that up. I mean, I, I think that the key thing, if we want to understand the First Amendment's history, is to appreciate that uh, there are specific common law protections for speech and press um, that coexist with a general natural right of expressive freedom. And so one of the things that uh, I want to highlight is that today we tend to conflate those. We tend to treat the freedom of speech as a protection of expressive communicative conduct. Uh, at the founding, that would be true in the second bundle of rights sense. But the first bundle of rights, the English common law rights, are actually much narrower in scope. And so what we're doing now is just fundamentally different than what we did uh, for a long time before because of that. Um, on the congressional power issue, um, I, I think this is uh, tricky because it turns in part on what the privileges or immunities are that are then uh, within Congress's enforcement power. One of the clearest things that Congress had the power to do under the 14th Amendment Section 5 was to bring cases into federal court. So the um, main concern here is that in state courts, you have a whole set of uh, biases, particularly against black litigants, um, that you can't resolve with substantive constitutional law. You just have to bring the case to a forum in which there's going to be a fair adjudication. And so the primary means of federal enforcement uh, is um, uh, 1983, uh, Section 1983 claims, uh, removal of criminal suits like the suit in Strouder, uh, and so on. And so that's, that's the primary uh, sort of paradigmatic example of a Section 5 enforcement power. Um, beyond that, it's much, much harder to figure out uh, exactly what Congress's role was. Um, and I think it's important as the histor uh, historical um, uh, study of that progresses to differentiate between Congress's role with respect to specifying procedural protections and specific common law protections, and then also what, if anything, Congress's role might be with respect to the protection of natural rights. So even the slaughterhouse dissenters agree that states retain the authority to enact restrictions on natural liberty pursuant to the police power. It's not clear that Section 5 did anything to take that away. Please join me in thanking our panelists.